We're continuing our series this morning on the first letter to the Thessalonians, and we come to the second half of chapter 4. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about those who have died. We don't want you to be sad like other people, those who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died, but we also believe that he rose again. So we believe that God will raise to life through Jesus any who have died and will gather them to be with him. What we tell you now is the Lord's own message. Those of us who are still living when the Lord comes again will join him, but not before those who have already died. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel with the, and with the trumpet call of God. And the people who have died and were in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive at that time will be gathered up with those who have died. We will be taken up in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And, what, and we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Let's pray. Father God, again we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that... Uh, uh, we can read it and we can think about it together. We pray that you would speak to our hearts now from this portion of your word as we look at it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at the cancellations of sporting events, celebrations, even church services, we have to ask ourselves, what's at the heart of these unprecedented drastic measures that have been taken? What is it that we're trying to stop? What is it that we're afraid might happen? What is it that has so many people worrying? Is there really an unseen enemy out there that we can't control who's out to get us? Are the leaders of this world humbled by the reality that no army in the world can stop it? Stockpiles of nuclear weapons can't deter it? Are we ourselves humbled by the reality that we're nowhere near as independent and confident of the control we have over our lives than we were just two weeks ago? Of course, what has people worried is the prospect of contracting the virus and dying. So it's important for us to know what God's word has to say about death and dying. It's also important for us to be able to speak about this to those who don't have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, death has become the taboo subject. Of course, in times past, it was sex, wasn't it? In the Victorian era, for example, they even covered piano legs because they thought piano legs were erotic and suggestive. But nowadays, death is the taboo subject. One hospital in the United States has even created a euphemism for death. Instead of talking about people dying, they talk about negative patient input. People go to great lengths to avoid thinking about and talking about death, which is strange because, as Bertrand Russell puts it, the ultimate statistic is that one out of every one of us dies. But Russell isn't actually correct, according to today's Bible reading. Paul tells us that there's going to be one whole generation that won't die, that generation which will still be alive when Jesus returns. 
Generally speaking, though, unless we belong to that particular generation, we'll all have to face death for ourselves. And we also have to come to terms, sorry, we also have to come to terms with the death of our loved ones as well. If you haven't already experienced that, you'll have to do so in the future. There's no getting away from it. So we really need to know how to deal with this. First of all, I want us to see the balance in what Paul says. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, We don't want you to be sad like other people, those who have no hope. Or as the older translations say, we don't want you to be ignorant like other people. It's actually a double negative. So he's really saying something positive. What he's saying is this. I, do, I, want you, I do want you to grieve, but not hopelessly. There's a balance there, a balance between grief and hope. Paul is not saying that Christians shouldn't grieve. He's saying, I want you to grieve, but I want you to grieve hopefully. So let's think about that this morning. Christians aren't meant to be stiff upper-lipped in the face of death. When Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus died, Jesus didn't say to them, Come on, chin up, Mary. Be strong, Martha. We're told in John chapter 11, verse 35, that when Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb, he cries. And then in verse 38 of John chapter 11, when Jesus gets to the grave of Lazarus, we're told that he's literally quaking with anger. It's a very strong word that's used in the Greek. Why? because people are not meant to die. It was never part of God's original design. And we need to know this. We need to hear this. Because people don't talk like this anymore, not even in churches. We need to know that death isn't a friendly fate for us to embrace. It's an enemy, an intruder for us to fight. In fact, the Bible actually calls it the last enemy. That's not what undertakers call it, of course. But we were not meant to die. We were meant to live. We weren't meant to grow older and older and more and more frail. We were meant to grow stronger and stronger. That's why Jesus is so offended at death. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's still offended by this monstrosity, this enemy that's come in and wreaked such havoc in the human race. Death is an abnormality. So Christians grieve. It's important for us to realise this because secular pagan Stoics will say, well, death's the end and that's that. Grieving doesn't help. What's the use of tears? It's not going to bring them back. That's just the way it is. You think about it, that's a pretty grim way of looking at it. But a lot of people do look at it in that way. And sometimes in the Christian church, especially in conservative Bible-believing circles, people will say, well, come on, where's your faith? In Job 1, we're told that Job loses absolutely everything. He loses his possessions, he loses his servants, he loses all his family even, his sons, his daughters and his wife. But we read in Job chapter 1 and verse 20, when Job heard this, he got up, tore his clothes and shaved his head to show his sadness. Then he fell to the ground to bow down before God and he said, When I was born into this world, I was naked and had nothing. When I die and leave this world, I will be naked and have nothing. 
The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. So Job stands up, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he's grieving, he's giving expression to his grief in a way that culturally we don't do. But then we read in verse 22 of Job chapter 1, after, even after all this, Job did not sin. Now, if Job was in some of our churches, we might put a big question mark around his faith, mightn't we? Job, where's your faith? The more liberal Christians might say, well, death's natural. It's just a part of life, nothing to be afraid of. There's a song in the movie The Lion King that goes like this. It's called The Circle of Life. From the day we arrive on the planet and blinking step into the sun, there's more to be seen than can ever be seen, more to, be, to do than can ever be done. Some say eat or be eaten. Some say live and let live. But all are agreed as they join the stampede, you should never take more than you give. In the circle of life, it's the wheel of fortune, it's the leap of faith, it's the band of hope, till we find our place on the path unwinding. In the circle, the circle of life, some of us fall by the wayside and some of us soar to the stars and some of us sail through our troubles and some have to live with the scars. There's far too much to take in here, more to find than can ever be found. But the sun rolling high through the sapphire sky keeps great and small on the endless round. Song sounds nice. But a lot of us so-called Christian people have been taken in by that kind of philosophy, that it's a circle of life and death is just part of the process. But friends, Jesus would have none of this. He would never see Lazarus' death as a part of the circle of life. He sits there sobbing with Mary and Martha. He shakes with rage. Now I have to say that in 40 years of ministry, I've taken hundreds and hundreds of funerals. Undertakers have a job to do and they try to do it to the best of their ability. They can be very kind, helpful people. But most of them have tapped into this wrong way of thinking. People say when they see a dead body laid out in a coffin, he or she looks so natural. Well, of course they do. The funeral director has done his work. But death is not natural. That may seem a bit harsh, but I want us to get back to what the Bible's teaching us. It is not natural. Death is not natural. It shouldn't happen. So rage. Be angry. To suppress grief and anger in the face of death isn't only psychologically bad, I'm saying it's theologically bad as well. If what I've been saying this morning is hard to hear, then here's the hope. Here's the balance. Just to rage, just to be angry, will actually make you bitter. It will make you hard. It will poison you if that's all you do with your grief. Paul says here, we want you to grieve. You should grieve. It's unhealthy not to grieve. It's an expression of your humanity to grieve and to be angry at what's happened, at what's been taken from you. It should move you profoundly, but not without hope. In the old days, they used to rub salt into meat to stop it from going off. They didn't have refrigerators and the like. And what Paul's doing here is to rub hope into grief. 
He says in verses 13 and 14, we don't want you to be sad like other people, those who have no hope. Is it only Christians who have hope? Most religions offer some kind of a belief in life after death, don't they? So it's not true to say that there's no hope out there. But whether it's a well-grounded hope or not is another matter. What Paul wants to show us is the difference that the gospel makes, the uniqueness of the Christian hope. It's unlike anything that any other religion can offer. What's unique about the Christian's hope? Well, it's unique in three ways. Firstly, it's personal. There are plenty of religions that say there's life after death, but in most cases they teach that you lose your individuality, you become like a drop in the ocean. But in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, After that, we who are still alive at that time will be gathered up with those who have died, will be taken up in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and we will be together with the Lord forever. Notice those two little words, together and forever. There's a togetherness and a foreverness here. In other words, we are not lost in God. We are found in Christ. That's the Christian hope. Warren Wearsby, an American commentator and pastor, once said to a man in his congregation, I'm very sorry, I hear you've lost your wife. The man replied, no, I haven't. I know exactly where she is. And when the Lord comes back, he'll bring her with him. She's not lost. She's found in Christ. She doesn't disappear into the ether and become some sort of spirit. This man said, I know exactly where she is. Verse 15, those of us who are still living when the Lord comes again will join him, but not before those who've already fallen asleep. Of course, if they've fallen asleep, then they're going to wake up again, aren't they? Verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the people who have died and were in Christ will rise first. We're going to come back to look at the aspect of the Lord's return next week. But the Greek word here in this verse is parousia, which means the personal appearance of Jesus. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, the wonderful chapter on love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, he says, Now I know only a part, but at that time I will know fully as God has known me. Let's think about that for a moment. Can you actually be yourself fully now? Would people still love you if they really knew you? Isn't it true for all of us that even with those who are closest to us, there's part of us that's hidden? We hold back because we're afraid that if we're fully known, we won't be fully loved. It's part of the damage that sin has done. So here, we only really know each other in part. And what Paul's saying is that we won't have to pretend, we won't have to hide, we'll be fully known and fully loved when Jesus comes back. That's what the future holds for us, Paul is saying. Secondly, it's solid, verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the people who've died and were in Christ will rise first. 
After that, we who are still alive at that time will be gathered up with those who've died. Jesus is undoubtedly coming back. He's coming back publicly. He's coming back triumphantly. This passage isn't what some people refer to as the rapture. Paul's telling us that when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring with him those who've fallen asleep already, and those who are still alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. Now that sort of leaves us literally hanging midair, doesn't it? It doesn't tell us where we go or what happens next. Many people think we'll be caught up to meet him in the air and then we'll be whisked away to Never Never Land, to heaven. But that's not what the passage means. There's going to be a great meeting. The word meet is a technical term. It's used to describe what happens when people come out from a city to join up with the entourage of a conquering king as he's coming home. Tom Wright in his commentary says this, and I quote, Their meeting with the Lord doesn't mean that they will be staying in midair with him. They're like Roman citizens in a colony going out to meet him when he pays them a state visit, then accompanying him back into the city. End quote. That's the picture here. It's like fans running out onto the football field after the game's over when their team has won. Try and stop them. It may be illegal, but if their team's won, they're going to run out onto the field to be with the players anyway. And that's the picture here. The conquering saviour returning to this world, having defeated all the ancient enemies of the human race, having conquered everything that spoiled life on this planet, death is defeated. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Sorrow and sin are no more. Jesus is coming back to put everything right, to put put things back to how they were originally meant to be. So, of course, his people run out to meet him, not to be spirited away, but to return with him and to share in his triumph in this world. That's what I mean by a solid hope. There's nothing ethereal or immaterial about this. You're not going to be sitting on a cloud plucking a harp. You're not going to flit and float in the kingdom of God. You're going to sing and dance and hug one another, something to look forward to after the coronavirus has ended. This is a substantial hope. I want you to know the facts, Paul says. You can be sure of this. I don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind. Oh, they may have some sort of hope in their religious beliefs, but they don't have a hope like this. And thirdly, it's well-grounded. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died, but we also believe that he rose again. There's a lovely story told about Donald Gray Barnhouse, a Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia. He lost his wife when his children were quite young. He'd conducted his wife's funeral service, and driving along the motorway after the service, he was trying to comfort his young son. He turns to his son in the back seat of the car and he says, Do you see that truck? Yes. Do you see the shadow of that truck? Yes. Would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow? Well, by the shadow, of course. Well, says Barnhouse, because Jesus was hit by the truck of death, your mother only had to go through the shadow. 
That's what Paul's saying here. We shouldn't minimise what Jesus went through. He was hit by the truck. He died the death that we deserve to die so that we don't have to go through that. For us, therefore, death is simply a falling asleep. You've probably heard these words that were written on a tombstone. I'm not sure whose tombstone it was, but uh, the words go like this. Remember, friend, when passing by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. Apparently someone added a couple of lines to that. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 in the ESV, the English Standard Version, says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. I don't want you to go into the night not knowing, Paul says. You can know because Jesus has died and is risen. Someone's died and come back, and we should listen to him and follow him. In the late Middle Ages, there was speculation in Europe that there was a sea route around what was then known as the Cape of Storms at the southernmost tip of Africa. Many people had attempted to get round that cape, but had failed until a man by the name of Vasco da Gama returned triumphantly, having rounded the Cape. And what used to be called the Cape of Storms is now known as the Cape of Good Hope. Someone has died and come back. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has turned what's surely a Cape of Storms into a Cape of Good Hope. I want you to grieve, says Paul, but I want you to grieve not without hope. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to take this teaching on board for ourselves. And if it's not immediately relevant to us, it will be. Please help us to store that away. Help us to know what we believe so that we can talk about these things with others who are puzzled and bewildered. Especially, Lord, we pray that as you comfort us and encourage us with your word, we pray that you would help us to encourage one another with these words because these are the very words of life, words that are true and that will never perish or depart. We ask this so that Jesus Christ will be known in us and through us and that we will be different before the watching world, even in the way that we grieve the loss of our loved ones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.